0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotty.
1: I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: I think the message to uh, psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases all over the world is uh, do not mess with suburbanites because, uh, frankly, we're just not going to take it anymore. You know, we're not going to be content to look after our lawns and wax our cars, paint our houses. We're out to get them, dog. We are out to get them. That's Rick Dukeman as Art Weingartner in 1989's The Burbs. I think he really speaks for all of us suburbanites, Adam.
1: I want it known that I have never waxed my car. I barely keep up my lawn.
0: True confession, though. Like Tom Hanks, I'm the guy who doesn't know how to use 90% of his toolbox.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it looks good, though, in the garage. The much derided suburbs, the subject of this week's top five. Joining us, actress and now podcaster Jessica Harper. Harper, best known as the star of the 1977 cult horror film Suspiria, though she has appeared in over 20 films, including the recent Suspiria remake. Harper is the host and producer of the new
0: autobiographical podcast series Winnetka, which is named for the Chicago suburb where she came of age in the 50s and 60s. We'll have all that and more ahead on Film Spotting.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. On this week's show, the first film in our long-awaited four-part john Cassavetti's marathon we're going to discuss 1968's faces this is a marathon about 13 years in the making a lot more singing in this movie than i expected josh yeah, i don't know I about that's you fair and cackling <laughs> yeah heavy on the cackling heavy cackling we will get to that here in a bit but first jessica harper And the top five movies about suburbia, Harper's feature film debut was Brian De Palma's 1974 fantasy rock opera Phantom of Paradise. She went on to star in Dario Argento's cult horror film Suspiria in 77. She's also appeared in films directed by Woody Allen, Todd Haynes, who I'm guessing is going to come up here on our list in a bit. And Steven Spielberg, in fact, she appears in Minority Report right now, has a good shot of making the final 64 of Film Spotting Madness. Director Luca Guadagnino brought Harper back for a role in last year's Suspiria remake. She is a songwriter and a children's book author, and her latest endeavor is a 10-part podcast memoir called Winnetka, its name for the Chicago suburb where Harper and her five siblings were raised and came of age in the 50s and 60s. Harper's going to join Adam in just a second for a talk about Winnetka,
0: and then we'll all get together to share our top 5 movies about the suburbs. But first, here's a clip from Harper's opening narration to her podcast.
2: In our waspy town and in our own home, the surface was glossy and scenic as ice on a lake. But there were times when that surface would crack, break apart and reveal a chilling darkness below. I knew all this But the thing I didn't know, until decades later, after we left Winnetka and childhood behind, was just how deep that darkness went. My father's death in 2013...
1: Joining us now, the woman behind the wonderful voice you just heard, Jessica Harper. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: So as of this recording... I believe we're three episodes into your 10-part Winnetka series. Those are the episodes that have been released. I was lucky to be able to listen to the entire series in advance. Really enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. Anyone listening that wants to seek it out, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts or go to winnetkapodcast.com. First, with you, Jessica, I wanted to mention that back in 2005, we had just started this show and we realized that we had a lot of blind spots in our film educations. And we started these things called marathons that we still do where we pick a genre or a filmmaker or a performer and just kind of indulge in their work for four to six movies and get caught up. The second marathon ever was a horror movie marathon. And we rectified the blind spot Suspiria. And at the (laughs) end, at the end of the marathon, as we always do, we hand out awards, our favorite scene, best picture, best actress, best actor, and so on you received our Best Actress Prize. So this was all just a ruse, all this suburbia stuff to get you on to officially (laughs) honor you.
2: I love that story. I don't think I knew about that, but I'm absolutely honored. Thank you. Yeah, at some (laughs)
1: point, it's only been about 14 years, we will get an actual statue and get it out to you. But there are a few different themes and ideas, tropes, I suppose, that we see running through movies about suburbia. One of them maybe the most all-encompassing we just heard you so beautifully articulate in the clip we played, that idea of a glossy, scenic surface and the chilling darkness beneath that reveals itself. We'll get into that darkness and share our list here shortly, but your father's funeral, I believe in 2013, provides kind of a framing device for the series. Was that event and some of the revelations it sparked when you first knew you wanted to explore this story, or did that come sometime before or after, and why a podcast versus another type of memoir?
2: Well, uh, no, the the answer is it came later. I was writing for an online magazine called Purple Clover. They suggested that I do a podcast for them, and I had no idea what that would be. But the editor said, no, you should do something about your family. And although I didn't end up doing it for them, I did go home and think about it and thought it could be interesting, but i wasn 't quite sure how, because I actually believe that every family has an incredibly interesting story somewhere if, if people it just takes identifying it and trying to tell it compellingly and I, so I dug around a little bit and and uh, did a little you know family history research and talked to my siblings. And then I found, as I just started trying to write it and shape it, that there were some really interesting threads that that I was really excited about writing and following. And uh, the reason I chose this format, although I was inspired by this early conversation about doing a podcast, was really because I love sound. I love listening to podcasts myself. I love listening to audiobooks. And I love the directions that people are taking this particular uh, medium, and I thought, hey, that would be really challenging, really fun, and also, I just love the, you know, I could write a memoir and it could be a book, but in, obviously in this medium you can, you know, I could record and, and use the voices of my family who are the characters in the story, and I just right. thought that was so, you know, it just brings it to life, obviously, in a really special way and also i really love the idea of playing with music in in the podcast which mm-hmm. i do quite a bit of so it just it was it just was something very to me felt very new and fresh and um something i would rather do than than just produce another you
1: know, a book. Mm-hmm. I really love Mary Carr's work. Probably best known for The Liars' Club, yeah, and, and yeah. recently The Art of Memoir. Yeah. Did you have any reference points for your story? Any direct influences or resources? I suppose did you have any guides through this process?
2: Well, I actually, I mean, I have read a lot of memoir, including hers. But I mostly, I I listened to a lot of podcasts. And number one, I didn't find anything, not that it doesn't exist, but I couldn't find anything that was a memoir, that it was anything like what I was undertaking. But I listened to some long form nonfiction like um, S-Town and The Moth with their short form. And I just, you know, I got some guidelines in the sense of, you know, gaining an understanding of what makes a story flow in this uh, format and, you know, how best to edit it to, to really make it work and tell the story. So, so it was really, it was an exploration and a whole other medium for me.
1: Probably a question you've already had many times, but what did you learn from the actual process of researching and producing the podcast? What perspective did it give you about you and your family or your relationship to your family that maybe you didn't anticipate or maybe couldn't even have foreseen?
2: Well, one thing that was really interesting, and I talked a fair amount about this in the first episode, is how our memories of common events uh, differed. Uh, you know, I, there are, I have five siblings, and there's a a bonus story after episode one, which is called The Joke. And what I did was, I, I there, there was this joke that my father used to tell Way too often. It was not a joke that was worth telling a single time, but he told it a couple hundred times. And, the, and it, so it was a joke that all of us knew very, very well in our childhood. I asked each of my siblings to make a recording of what their memory was of this joke. In other words, you know, what did they think this joke was? And they all sent me recordings, and they were all entirely different, one yeah. from the other. Yeah. And I, and this was just sort of a tip-off that what I was getting into was the fact that, you know, memory morphs over time. And um, people will, ha- even though we've shared the same house and often the sh- same events for so many years, people will have different memories and, um, you know, different thoughts about what went down.
1: And you referenced some different threads that that really particularly piqued your interest and, and you wanted to explore what what were they for the people who haven't heard any of the episodes yet maybe what was what was maybe the the biggest um, secret maybe isn't the right word because i obviously don't want to get into into those details too much but mm-hmm. just in terms of uh, some of those nuances and those differences in, in recollection what did you want to get to the bottom of.
2: Well, I wanted to get that there is a a, one thread going through it as my father's volatility. And, you know, I learned actually in the course of doing this that he really did have PTSD or so my mother thought when he came out of the war, as did, you know, most men of his generation and was forced to sort of repress any kind of emotional experience he might have had from that. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, something that I was very interested in pursuing, and and that became sort of a thread throughout his, his you know his bouts of anger and so on. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I also picked up on, as listeners will will hear, a thread of racism in my family that I don't want to tell too much about, but it it does it is a it is a very important thread throughout the story, and uh, very much affects the ending of the story. And that was very obviously disturbing and and, but interesting to look into. I got to know my family better. Yeah. uh, In the course of this thing, I mean, I got to know my siblings and what you know how they felt about our childhood. I got to know my mother. It was wonderful to spend all that time with my mother. So wonderful and funny and smart. Yeah. You hear that. I mean, she's she unfortunately passed away in 16, but she's she was remarkable. Um, and so just spending that time with her and capturing her voice was so special.
1: Yeah, I, I had a feeling when, when you do say in the podcast that your mother had, had passed away, I thought what what a, a reward it was then or what a thrill it must be for you to have these recordings and have her exactly. telling her story.
2: Exactly. It really is, especially when since. She, you know, she tells them so well, and she's so captivating.
1: Yeah. Uh, about your father, I imagine the answer to this is, is fairly obvious, but you mentioned what you learned about him. That had to completely kind of reshape the way you thought about your childhood since that, that volatility was so was such a dominant part of growing up for you.
2: Yeah, it was, and I do, I mean, I, you know, by the time I finished the show, um, you know, I learned not only how to make a podcast, but I learned all this stuff about my family that really impacted my feelings about, as you say, about my childhood and about the specific people, of my father and my mother, and how they were impacted by the era and by each other during this time. That was, you know, stuff that you just obviously aren't aware of when you're a child. It's more like, why is he behaving this way towards me? So, you know, you, you can come to a place where you forgive them for certain things and love them for other things. And, you know, it's a, it was quite a journey mm. <laughs> creating
1: this thing. Yeah. So this one's going to be a little bit of a long-winded uh, setup here to the question, but I want to establish another theme for uh, this topic of suburbia. This mm-hmm. list that we're doing actually coincides with the 30th anniversary of the movie, The Burbs, the Joe Dante movie, The Burbs, starring Tom Hanks. Oh. Yeah. And uh, uh-huh. Charles Bermesco, who's a writer, uh, wrote a piece for The Guardian looking back on The Burbs 30 years later. And he has a really interesting point in his opening paragraph about how movies reckon with the suburbs maybe a little bit differently now than when all these other films we're going to touch on were made. And he says this, maybe it's the infinite connectivity of the internet erasing the sensation of isolation, but films such as Eighth Grade, Edge of Seventeen, and their ilk have developed a passive relationship to to their provincial suburban setting, regarding it as dull but harmless. Even the films about stagnating adulthood, see Game Night. No, really, see Game Night. Draw their unease from within rather than their surroundings. Mm-hmm. So, all three movies he referenced—they're very good and worth seeing. But none are really about the physical setting itself. The aesthetics of suburbia are mostly a non-factor, whereas I can't think of suburbia without thinking of the, the Pete Seeger hit from the 60s, Little Boxes, that starts out talking <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. about all the little boxes on the hillside made of tiki tacky yeah. and they all look just the same. <laughs> yeah. And then they talk about the people who all look just the same, the right. monotony and the conformity of the space mm-hmm. has always mm-hmm. gone hand in hand with the the dreadful monotony and conformity of the people who live there. I found it interesting, though, to learn listening to your series that your parents did find some ways to subvert that sense of conformity, sometimes even to your dismay.
2: Yes, they did. They always went against the grain somewhat, and I'm very grateful to them for that now, although when I was a budding adolescent, and all I wanted to do was conform and be liked by the popular girls. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but, you know, in all honesty, that's what was going on. But now I'm really, you know, I I really admire the fact, in retrospect, that they were, you know, they had orange carpeting on the floor, and they they didn't conform to the very waspy aesthetic that that dominated um, in Winnetka, Illinois. And nor did they, you know, play golf or doubt all those other nasty habits that Winneka residents had. You know, they weren't really country club people or all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I I like that that they rubbed up against it some. Sure.
1: So we've talked about the darkness beneath the surface. We've talked about conformity. There's one more major aspect of the way suburbia is represented on screen that Winneka explores in episode eight, and I promise I will not spoil anything here. Your brother says this, when talking about a world-changing event in the Harper household that, let's just say, your father did not view positively.
0: I, in fact, remember feeling totally elated. The 60s were swirling around. Billy and Jessica were, you know, off having their fun 60s experiences. And now the 60s were visiting our house full on. I also remember Being excited by the fact that there was this drama now happening in our house, drama that might actually lead to some emotional truth and some emotional expression, that because this was
1: happening, it would finally be okay to feel. The other big reality of suburban life is that sense of repression. Part of conforming, maybe even, was that you didn't express your individuality or emotion. There was this expectation of equanimity. And that kind of actually goes back to the darkness beneath the surface, too. You don't show anyone what you're really... Feeling. You have to maintain appearances. And you certainly felt that.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it. you know, probably the most egregious example being that of the my father coming home and, and his peers coming home from the war and they jumped right into suburban life and they jumped on the train and went to work. And they never were, as my mother says in the podcast, they weren't allowed to whine about uh, what had happened um, to them in the war. My father was in the South Pacific and he had some really Awful, as everybody did, awful and traumatic experiences, and they never talked about it. And they didn't, he and his um, brother, for example, didn't talk about it for years until he was in his 80s, really. Hmm. Um, So that was, um, you know, a sort of prime example of that. And then I know in the movies we're going to be speaking about, those movies really spoke to me because there was this general just uh repression and and um you know in a movie called the ice storm which is a title i borrowed from one of my episodes because it so resonated with me because you know there's a reason why we were called the frozen people Hmm. yeah you weren't allowed to feel i mean i also in the podcast i describe a scene in which i once tried out feelings on my father and literally sat on a sofa and sort of went through a gamut of emotional expression just for the sake of doing it. Like I started laughing and then I started crying and I just kept kind of pushing it a little bit to see how long it would take before he exploded (laughs) uh, in reaction to it. And, he didn't, actually. He just looked at me like I was insane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so very early training for an actress there,
2: obviously. I know, right.
1: right. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get to some of those titles then, uh, one you've already touched on. And for that, I'm going to bring in my co-host, Josh Larson. Josh, welcome back.
0: Hi, Jessica. Thanks for being willing to play
1: along with our uh, silly top five game here.
2: Oh, it's great to play along with you. Hi, Josh.
1: Hi. So we're going to start, and this, this worked out really perfectly. There's a lot of kind of symmetry and crossover between our picks here. We have a joint list. You have your list. And mm-hmm. um, there's, there's kind of themes that do connect these picks. And we're going to start with a couple of movies that, uh, among other topics, focus on couples in crisis. Let's hear your number five.
2: Well, Revolutionary Road is definitely in that category. I just have this vivid image of Kate Winslet bleeding at the end of this movie and how the whole movie kind of leads up to this this electrifying and horrifying moment when her marriage is just so sort of crippled. And, and these images of, of suburbia in that movie that were so resonant for me, <laughs> I'm not sure which, which suburb it was actually now that I think of it, but um, it just looked so much like my hometown and was so you know, reminiscent of uh, of homes where my friends and I grew up.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that gaze out the window, I went back and, and looked at my notes and Sam Mendes, the director, returns to that shot and there's just this sense of kind of longing for something more that also runs yeah. through a lot of these these films about suburbia. Roger Deakins, the great cinematographer, shot that film. But definitely with that movie, there's, there's no denying that kind of beautiful surface. Everything on the outside looks great inside. Very dark. Yeah.
2: Yeah. hideous beneath
1: the surface yeah so our pick that ties in with that is a serious man uh, a Cone brothers film the marital trouble kind of at the the core of that movie between uh, judith and larry larry is played by michael stuhlbarg it's actually shot in st louis park a suburb of minneapolis takes place in the mid 60s it's the neighborhood that the Cone brothers grew up in and i think what you see with a lot of these movies and what this film really nails. And there's, there's one line for me that really does it. And it's when Larry says, everything that I thought was one way turns out to be another. And, and that, that ties also to this idea when he's, he's going to try to talk to the, the rabbi, he's trying to get some guidance and he's, he's pleading his case to the secretary. And he says that I've tried to be a serious man. I've tried to do right. I've tried to be a member of the community, and he's tried to raise his kids. He's sent them to Hebrew school. He adds even a good breakfast. I love that he throws in a good breakfast. But this, <laughs> this idea that he's tried to do everything sort of the way everyone told him it was supposed to be. He bought the house in the suburbs. He's had the, the couple kids. He sent them to the right school. He's feeding them. And yet his life can collapse completely mm-hmm. just kind of in a moment the way right. it does, and everything does get turned on its head.
0: I think a serious man also captures what you were talking about earlier, Adam, that sense of physical space, you know, the geographical nature Mm -hmm. of the suburbs. I think immediately of all those houses, but I also think of the television antenna. That's the defining image for me is Larry up on the roof trying to exert some sort of control. I mean, how much of the suburbs is about control, right? We're going yeah, to control this environment yeah. down to a
1: T and that television intent is just one more way he's going to try to do that. Yeah, and there's a power struggle, too, with the neighbor. And you think about suburban movies, that, that's another trope that comes up a lot. The the guy who's the prototypical conservative 60s dad, the white shirt, the buzz cut, mowing the lawn, and he's consistently mowing a patch of Larry's lawn sure. causing all this consternation. So, yeah, I love A Serious Man. Wanted to make sure we, we gave it some attention here. So we go on to another pair of films at number four. Both of these films have in common that they are set in high schools. What's your pick, Jessica?
2: Well, I thought immediately of Bye Bye Birdie because um, <laughs> it was a movie I loved. Once upon a time, and uh, it, it, it doesn't really fit with our list in terms of um the other choices are rather darker than say Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> but it's sort of a fun case of suburban oblivion and. Uh, Worship of anything that comes from the outside that has, that, you know, lends any freshness to the atmosphere in this suburb, which, you know, this in the form of this rock star who comes and uh, does his Elvis impression.
0: Yeah, they they do share this sense of disruption in common. I think, Jessica, Bye Bye Birdie and Donnie Darko, um, (laughs) even though the disrupting forces are very different. So you've got Conrad Birdie's, you know, this Elvis stand in in Bye Bye Birdie. And then in Donnie Darko, it's it's really this jet engine that falls from the sky through the roof of of Donnie's suburban home right onto his bed and Uh. kicks off this uh, warped. Time space continuum. So, yeah, it goes in a very different direction than <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie, but really um, does also, I think, capture uh, the mindset of uh, a suburban youth in the similar way, too. You know, getting in the head of Jake Gyllenhaal's main character who he's either suffering from some sort of psychological disorder or he's like a doomsday prophet, right? <laughs> yes. And then we've got in Bye Bye Birdie, and um, who is, I watched this for our list, Jessica, for the first time. We watched it as a family and had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, th- I think I'm, it sounds like maybe like your experience, I would have liked it a lot more when I was younger <laughs> than watching now, but there's definitely some great things about it. And Anne margarets thirst for stardom is what stood out to me. I mean every scene she's just going for it and it's almost as if she doesn't care how hokey the material might get she's going to come out of this thing a star and
2: you know, she was incre- and by the way I just want to say she's from Winnetka Really yeah she went to New Trier High School and that's where she got her start That's right there you go Bye!
1: I think that's a great pairing too, because I almost think of Donnie Darko as a little bit of a musical because because of the prominence Uh of those extended montages, right? Head over heels and and camera movement. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I love, I love this next set, especially here at number three, I would give the connection, but I think it's going to be immediately obvious to anyone here as uh, we set it up. And why don't you go ahead and tell us your number three, Jessica.
2: Far from heaven, Todd Haynes, incredible movie, that starred Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid. And again, it was it, it sort of, a you know, the suburban setting, it, it's, it takes place in the uh, 50s, I think, as I recall. So it's a time when the surface is very, is lovely, and everything in America is wonderful, except that, as we know, she discovers that her husband is gay. And it, at that time, of course, this would be a rather, no, nowadays it wouldn't matter. But back then it was quite difficult and we wouldn't categorize it as, as the dark side, just mm-hmm. as the um, forcibly hidden side. But she, I remember this, this image of Julianne Morris sitting on a sofa, surrounded by her suburban housewife friends, drinking tea or something. And she has this smile plastered on her face, and the camera moves in very slowly on her face, behaving as if nothing is bothering her in the slightest. And it's just a perfect sort of suburban moment where there's something absolutely dreadful, at least in her mind, going on, but she is determined not to show any sign of that.
1: Yeah, that's such a great choice. And actually, you were in a Todd Haynes film, Safe, which is another movie that would qualify for this list. Any any stories or recollections of working for Todd?
2: Oh, he was fabulous. Yes, I thought about that, too. The movie Safe is also sort of about both a troubled marriage and a uh, well, it's a very it's a very unusual movie and very compelling and she's great in it, Julianne Moore. I had a really wonderful time doing that although it was right around the time of the Northridge earthquake. That's part of the reason I, I have it that really impacts my memory of it. I don't, you guys weren't in LA no. most likely, but it was an incredibly powerful earthquake. People In fact, many New Yorkers moved back to New York after that. No kidding. Yeah, and we were shooting out in this location way the hell out there. In order to get there, you had to go on these highways that had buckled in the um, earthquake. So I actually couldn't make one day of shooting because I just couldn't leave my little children at home and go off. So anyway, my memory of it is definitely informed by that. But also, I just thought, I think Todd Haynes is is fabulous.
1: Yeah, he is. And he was taking his cue here from Our Choice, which is All That Heaven Allows, the Douglas Mm -hmm. Cirque film from 1955. Todd Haynes really ratchets it up, though, adding the racial component uh, to mm-hmm. that that relationship in the uh, Jane Wyman and uh, Rock Hudson version. He's he's just the gardener. He's not the proper class. That's the big um, controversy here. The husband is is dead. She's a widow at this point. Instead of uh, Dennis Quaid and the issues that that you mentioned. But I rewatched this for this list and. Wow, this is a great film. It's just beaming in this beautiful technicolor, and everything is so perfectly in place. Every home, every tree, every lawn, every storefront. It opens on this extended overhead shot from a hill looking down, and it comes down into the town, and it just subtly suggests that nothing about this town is real at all. It's this Mm -hmm. construct of perfect bliss. Every aspect of it is designed to hide all of these messy human dramas that are playing out behind the closed doors. And uh, there's just this sense of order and hierarchy. It's so ingrained that Mm -hmm. when, when Carrie, the Jane Wyman character, brings Rock Hudson's Ron to a party at her friend's house, they can't wait for their arrival just to see her with The gardener and and there's there's a moment here that that i have to play because it's just this this wonderful bit of audio where eleanor audrey is the actress and she she comes up to them at the party. she wonders if she has seen ron before
3: haven't i seen you somewhere before well mrs humphrey probably in your garden i've been pruning your trees for the last three years oh yes of course Sarah, I really must be going.
1: So then she excuses herself, and and it has nothing to do with her shame in that situation, which she should be feeling. It's all about him daring to make her that uncomfortable by being so vulgar as to even be there at the party with people he does not belong with at all. And the movie is as intricately, I think, and as immaculately rendered as the town itself, but unlike most of the characters, Cirque just has no problem allowing for feelings amidst all this stifled repression it's in the faces of rock hudson it's in the face of of jane wyman every time the reality of someone else's expectations and demands uh, she's confronted with those uh, and right. the way they clash with her heart we see it so I, I love this film yeah yeah adam you mentioned um
0: you know donnie darko feeling like a musical i that's how cirque's melodramas play to me is as, as if i'm watching a musical just without the production numbers you know it's got Everything else you need, the colors, the costumes, the production design you were just talking about. So, yeah, they're, they're
1: overwhelming experiences that way because of that feeling mm-hmm. that musicals often have, too. So we get to our number two here, and we have a pair of picks that both have in common kids affected by their parents' choices. One of these films you did already mention, Jessica, was a little bit of an inspiration for you. You referenced it in one of the titles of your episodes, as you said, The Ice Storm.
2: Yeah, The Ice Storm. The scene, one scene in this movie, of course, is, I mean, it looks like, you know, I think it was possibly Westchester, as I recall, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but it, it just looks like a modern suburb. And I, I remember, well, first of all, I remember Sigourney Weaver's performance being, she just seemed like the perfect sort of quintessential, slightly frozen suburban housewife, and particularly in relation to her children. But I remember one scene where there was a key swapping party, Mm -hmm. which for those who are (laughs) nicer people than the people in this movie may not know, is when at the end of a very drunken cocktail party, the guests at the party put their car keys in a basket. And then they, one at a time, they pick them out randomly. And whoever's keys they wind up with is somebody they can go to the car and have sex with or upstairs and have sex with. So they're swapping partners via... Car keys, and my, I remember a story. My sister Diana, my older sister, went over to visit her friend Chris Johnson in high school sometime in Winnetka, and she was just there, kind of innocently, doing her homework or something. And and she she noticed that this very same kind of party game was taking place under Mrs. Johnson's purview. Wow. And it was. <laughs> she came home and she went. Wait, what? What is this? <laughs> but it was just kind of a another example of this, um, you know, perfectly lovely town with its perfectly lovely surface, and then all that gnarly stuff going on underneath. Yeah. So that kind of struck a chord with me in this movie, but also just generally, as I say, just the general kind of, I mean, the, you know, the obvious imagery of the ice and the, everything frozen, including the, you know, the emotional life in this house and in other houses and and how it impacts the children
1: for sure and if you listen to more of your series people will learn that you guys spent some time out of winnetka actually moving to greenwich this film takes place i think in new canaan is the town that's only 15 minutes away from where you guys spent maybe not the best days as people will hear
2: right and greenwich yeah wasn't no it it was not a good experience
1: So our pick here for the kids affected by parents' choices is Poltergeist from the 80s. And going back to that Burbs article, Charles Bromesco says, at the end, a full decade before American Beauty picked up a Best Picture statuette for portraying the suburbs as a hellacious prison of middle age, Dante had made his peace with them as a locus of unease for aging boomers nervous about their generation's slide out of radicalism. And I think he's dead on because that, that ties right back to Poltergeist. I know I've said it before. Here on the show when talking about this film, but there's that scene early in the movie where Joe Beth Williams is the mom, Craig T. Nelson is the dad. They're getting high. Their kids have gone to bed. They think they're safely in (laughs) bed, and they're getting high. And I think this is also the, the scene where their kid is while they're smoking pot, their kid is getting menaced by that tree coming through his window. But it cues you into the fact that these are baby boomers who were getting high and were radical in the 60s, and now I think he's laying there in the scene reading a book about Ronald Reagan, and they're living in their their perfect little box that was built partially by him. He's a real estate developer, and you want to talk about literalizing the idea of the the darkness below the surface. They're living on top of a cemetery. What did they do? <laughs> they, they They took the surface out. They took the headstones off, but they left... The bodies below which then ah. sparks the entire film he he maybe didn't know he was told that they cleared the bodies out but i'm guessing he didn't look too hard or uh, was willing to be a little bit in denial about it because he found the perfect home and he wanted that that ideal little box as i said would he really have stopped it so uh, he is complicit in a way and his family ends up paying for it in poltergeist
0: is poltergeist one you remember well jessica
2: uh, if you're bringing it all back to me right now.
0: I, uh, <laughs> Maybe tried to repress some of those scenes.
2: <laughs> I really want to go see it again. Uh, That's a good film. About it. Yeah, yeah, it
0: really is. Yeah, I really like it. And there's actually, tying on what you were just talking about, Adam, a bit of a Winnetka tie-in to this, because... I don't know if it's just intimated or suggested or maybe it's just something I'm misremembering, but that burial ground you talk about might be an actually a Native American burial mm-hmm. ground. And that speaks, I think, to – it makes poltergeist a critique of sort of the ravenous reach of the suburbs, particularly when it comes to indigenous people in America. Sure. And Winnetka, from what I understand, Jessica, I don't know if you can – Correct me on this, or if you know this to be true, is Pottawatomie for something like beautiful land or beautiful
2: landscape? I always heard it meant bad smell.
0: (laughs) Okay, or that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Because apparently it was quite swampy in its its early days. So that's what I was always told, which I thought was unfortunate.
0: Okay, but still it does (laughs) speak to the fact that either way, you know, my own Chicago suburb has streets. Mm -hmm. Illogically. Of Native American names, mm-hmm. you know, even right. from tribes that are nowhere near the right. Chicago area.
2: The country club that we were members of in Winnetka, Illinois, was called the Indian Hill Club.
0: There you go. Mm-hmm. And You'll find this throughout suburbs, right? And and it's just, again, sort of this brazen um, land grab that's yeah. still being perpetuated in okay. these naming devices. I, th- I think, you know, if it's not a literal Native American burial ground and poltergeist, I think it still kind of
1: hits on No, I, I think it's suggested for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our number one here. And we have the same film here in the number yeah. one slot. It, it really has to be for a show based in Chicago, for a show where you're on talking about growing up in when. It's really the Chicago suburb movie. The suburb in question is Lake Forest and it's Robert Redford's film from 1980 Ordinary People. I wondered, Jessica, if this was a film that was one of those films, maybe maybe the first film that you really felt like you, you had some sense of your own childhood being yeah. kind of reflected back on you.
2: Well, first of all, as you say, Lake Forest was the first suburb we moved to when there were only three children before we moved to Winnetka, so I am very well acquainted with that town, which even more so than Winnetka, the the, kind of place where everything was beautiful on the surface and clearly not so much below, and, you know, people sort of broken by it. I mean, Mary Tyler Moore gave an incredible performance as a woman who was really really shut down uh, to the point where at the very end of the movie if you recall when Donald Sutherland who was wonderful in the movie Mm -hmm. says you know it's over and she I remember her going up into the bedroom and she just stood for a minute and then just sort of this shiver went through her and that was all the emotion she was really capable of and then she just left
1: yeah no it's it's great
2: that was all she could summon you know, I had a, the opportunity some years ago to actually speak to Redford about this because it was so resonant for me. And he had just—I think it was right around the time he had done the movie, so it was quite a while ago. And he said there was this very striking thing for him about uh, what he encountered in the wasp culture in Lake Forest. And he said, "There's this thing where you you speak to somebody." He—he he was talking in particular about this, you know, middle-aged suburban man he had spoken to, and he—and you get back nothing there's just this kind of wasp stare that comes back at you uh there's no response there's there's no stirring of the soul of this person wow and i know exactly what he was talking about and you know it was really striking for him and he he placed that very thing in the movie at various points but yeah it's to me, it was it's the most resonant of all these movies we've spoken about in those terms, that it just, you know, obviously very familiar because I lived there, but also because of the particular points. That the story in Redford made about you know the damage done to people who don't communicate, yeah, and who shut all this stuff down. In that case, a, a family tragedy.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Mary Tyler Moore as Beth, uh, the mother, and dealing with losing a, a son, and then Timothy Hutton's character. He's also so good. Everyone's so good in this film yeah. uh, as right. the the younger brother who is dealing with the fallout from that, and and he just cannot connect. With yeah. his mother, and we learn a lot more about that, but she has this line that's that's a very nice line, but you realize is kind of sinister at the same time, where she says, I want this to be a nice Christmas. <laughs> you know and nice nice means uneventful it means it's no drama threat. she's offering a threat it's a ther- there it really is it, 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 we're going to give our gifts we're going to get our gifts but we're not going to do anything to make ourselves or our neighbors uneasy there can't be right. any embarrassment here and that's what she's she's constantly fighting against she even can't handle you know how much how much conrad uh, as her son and, and her husband donald sutherland just how much they feel seems yeah. to overwhelm her there's that moment where Uh, They pose for a picture together, son and and mom, and just being that close to her son for too long makes her uneasy. She's just incapable of that that intimacy. But I, I wanted to bring this up. And Josh, you just saw Ordinary People actually for the first time.
0: Yeah, although while I'm watching it, I was thinking, you know, I've seen this maybe when I was really little. It's possible because so many of the scenes were familiar. But again, this is a movie where, especially for the Oscars, scenes are often replayed. So that could be the case, too. But I did just
1: rewatch it. But I've always struggled a little bit with the portrayal of Beth. And I mean struggle in a good way. Not not necessarily that I think Redford is doing anything wrong here. But I love that Mary Tyler Moore performance. I do think she brings depth to a role that could have been more one note than it is. But the movie does make her basically the villain that our our kind of heroes, the men here, have to get away from in order to live and to feel and to be their true selves. And there was a part of me that always oddly sympathized with her or wanted mm-hmm. to understand her better, especially during Cal's big confession scene, that scene where he talks about the day of Buck's funeral. Mm-hmm. And his, his whole thing is that he recognizes that it's always stuck with him that she corrected him on what he should wear that day. You should wear a white shirt and the other shoes. And and she doesn't even want to bring this up. But he's so caught up on the fact that on that day, the worst day of his life, that she was worried about how he looked. And I think that, that scene maybe is supposed to be the ultimate indictment of her infatuation with appearance above right. all else. And and right. And sure, maybe in that moment that she couldn't see what her husband was going through is is something she should be indicted for. But, you know, having been through some of these types of days myself, it's easy to focus on everything but the enormity of the situation mm-hmm. and the weight yeah. of your grief and just wanting to distract yourself with trivialities. Absolutely. So I really I connect with her in a way that I don't know that the movie completely in the end reckons with as much as I'd like. Well, not yeah. only that, Adam, but Mary Tyler Moore plays that scene she shows some affection
0: and hugs him and holds him in a way that she hasn't gone near anyone, as you say, previously in the movie. And I wanted to ask you this, Jessica, because I wonder almost if it's a difference between performance and screenplay uh, that might be going on here because uh, the the performance itself has those little gestures that you've already talked about, that shiver um, in the garage when she hugs him. Or I think about the other moment where she prioritizes straightening a vase over meeting her son's emotional needs in that moment. Mm -hmm. And, And so this performance is very nuanced outside of what I think the story is asking of her. And I, too, was a little let down by the ending where it does push her out of the picture as the bad guy, kind of putting all the blame for the family's Issues, the tragedy, yes, but also then that they couldn't get through it on her. I don't know what you make of that, Jessica, if you see maybe a difference between performance and screenplay there or if there's something else going on.
2: Well, I think there's always a difference between performance and screenplay and everything. I mean, you know, it just happens organically when, when the cameras roll and an the actor behaves however they do. I think, it, you know, the nuances will shift there's no avoiding that, and, 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 and you know, in a, on a good day, it works out beautifully because you get you get what the actor has to offer um, in addition to what the story has to offer. Mm-hmm.
3: I was thinking about the pigeon, you know, the one that
0: used to hang around the garage, and how he used to get on top of your car and he take off when you pulled out
1: of the driveway. Oh
2: yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember how scared I used to get of <laughs> that whoosh. Flip, 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 Every time i started the
0: car yeah that was the closest we ever came to having a pet you remember buck asked you he tried to talk you into uh getting a dog do you remember that and he said how about if it's just the size of
2: a little football you know um that that animal next door that uh, pepper or pippin whatever pippin, his name pippin, it, pippin. is not a very friendly dog i I don't care what Mr. McGreery really says. Really not. And every sale. time that dog wanted, comes the into the this retriever. backyard and I try to get him out, he. Put that on if you're going to stay out here, okay? Actually, I did feel some sympathy for her, as I recall, when I saw it. I, I, I sort of went, you know, I kind of get that, even right. though, yeah, as you say, she was a bad guy, but she was. She she had her reasons for being shut down. God knows. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, often when things are terrible, you do straighten a vase or you do say change your tie because you you know you're grasping at triviality to get you through a moment that's just otherwise you know it's just intolerable.
1: That's it. Yeah.
2: And so I did I did feel for her. I don't I didn't really feel that she was you know treated terribly. I but you know, on the other hand, you understand her much more obviously empathetic husband. Yes. You know, so it's just I think the reason she leaves is because their marriage you know, they I think they just see they can't they can't fix it. It you know, it sort of is what it is. They're kind of intractable on two sides.
1: So I think if we've learned anything from this list, it's that marriages can't survive in the suburbs. Just don't even bother. Don't get right. married. Don't move to the suburbs. <laughs> It's not going to work out.
0: Right. (laughs) Well, it does bring me to a question. We haven't really talked about any positive portrayals at all on our list. And the Bromesco well, piece... where's the fun in that? I think I, know. <laughs> I think suggests, you know, maybe something like the Burbs is... It kind of aligns with the Suburbanites in the end, after that twist ending. Yes. And something like Game Night sees its characters a little more affectionately, I think. I yeah. push back on his... There's a lot of geography, if you think about that opening credits sequence, though, to Game Night, where it actually well, looks at the Suburbanites yeah. as a game board. But, um, yeah, do we have... Can we think of one that's... You I mean, not like positive. everything's perfect, but at least is maybe a comedy that puts a slightly... Well, what about,
2: like, Home Alone was actually shot. The house from Home Alone is in Winnetka, Illinois. Okay.
1: <laughs> there you go. So yeah, that could be, that's be
2: kind it. kind of uh, a fun upper. I mean, they
1: neglect their child, and, and yeah, you know, all sorts fun. of bad things happen, but... Nitpicking, Adam. <laughs> Nitpicking, indeed. So I'm glad we got a mention of Home Alone in there, and this was a lot of fun. I hope, Jessica, you had half as much fun as we did doing this list.
2: I love this. This is really fun. Great.
1: And again, highly recommend that everyone listening checks out Winnetka. They can hear a lot more about Lake Forest and uh, Jessica's upbringing there. And later in Winnetka, you can find it at winnetkapodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Jessica, again, thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I can't seem to find
1: my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. Ah! In addition to Home Alone, we have a couple other honorable mentions for our favorite movies about suburbia. First, I do want to acknowledge my biggest regret, a movie I wasn't able to catch up with, but in doing some research, I really need to see Burt Lancaster in The Swimmer. Mm. So that's been added to the list. And then we have to acknowledge, because I'm sure some listeners have forgotten this, and they were listening to all those pics, and they're screaming at their computer or their iPhone or whatever right now. They're saying, where's E.T.? Well, E.T. is in the Pantheon. Yes. It would be it eligible, be. but it's in the Pantheon. It's ineligible for this okay, list. Okay, there's
0: a positive one, don't you think? The camaraderie of the kids. Okay. That's, another, a, that's a family that has its challenges. Another but, marriage that but, is dissolved. Well, but, but that family unit we do see, I think, is a strong one. Okay.
1: Well, well played, Josh. I'm going to go with that as a positive I will, I will buy vision. that. So E.T., and then also, not so positive, The Graduate. Also qualifies for this list, suburb of L.A. So those two didn't make it. What are some of the others that were just on the outside for you? Well,
0: maybe an obvious one people are also thinking of is The Stepford Wives, which, you know, I think is, is a better idea than movie, but certainly perfect for this list. Speaking of Joe Dante and the Burbs, how about Gremlins? I mean, that's very much – it's a monster movie, yeah. but it's also – a suburbs movie. I didn't know about The Truman Show. How to think about that. Fake suburbs, but it's kind of the subject of that movie in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: so we didn't get into this with Jessica. I didn't want to devolve into this conversation, but I think there are a list of films that often you will see being considered as suburban films, that I'm sorry, Mr. Technicality here is saying they're not suburban films. They are just small town films, and that's yes. what the Truman Show is. And there is a difference. Well, you could even say that of something you know, like Bye Bye Birdie. I guess Though, I agree. A lot of the that,
0: teenage that's the concerns, one outlier. yeah. A lot of the teenage concerns do speak to it's the same thing in suburban
1: high school or small town. Yes, yeah, Blue Velvet, for example, also yes. on the Pantheon, Ineligible, yeah. but maybe the most iconic darkness under the surface sure, opening, <laughs> suburban for sure. opening, right? Yeah. But again, that's just a small town. That's not really meant to be a suburb. So not eligible. Halloween would be the same.
0: I'm going to give you one more here as an honorable mention. It actually comes from listener Rosalie Lewis. uh, Samuel Fuller's The Naked Kiss, which uh, when I wrote about it, described as an extroverted version of a Douglas Sirk melodrama. So certainly working in the
1: same vein there. So we got in a mention of the burbs, multiple mentions of the burbs. But also, I think two other filmmakers you have to include somehow in this discussion, because they have almost exclusively worked within the milieu of the suburbs. Todd Solons, and you could look at a movie like Happiness or any others that Mm -hmm. you would like to choose. And of course, John Hughes. The Breakfast Club would probably be my favorite of the bunch, but all shot here in the Chicago burbs, made up a town. Shermer, Illinois doesn't really exist, but shot here at actual high schools. And Hughes, obviously one of those filmmakers you immediately think of Chicago when you think of him.
0: And that ran through my head as maybe another potential um, somewhat sunnier depiction though there's also intense spieler's day off <laughs> yeah. ah, has some darkness <laughs> yeah exactly so it kind of goes both ways yes but comedies at least
1: some more darkness little children yes. we considered the virgin suicides we considered another chicago suburban shot movie risky business with tom cruise and finally i'm shocked josh shocked that you didn't mention your beloved edward scissorhands
0: well if we're going to give quickly our actual top fives okay because we did joint five family. no yeah. No, I we're can. not going to. You don't well, get to. It's my number five.
1: You can't spoil <laughs> me, the illusion Let me just for throw everyone. that in.
0: It's my number five, Edward Scissorhands. You okay. want to hear my number four? No. Because you haven't seen it. Which one? Over the Hedge. I have Recent seen it. animated film. It's really good. It's a great kid movie that's
1: also a very funny suburban satire. Okay. I think we have made it through the list. Josh has 17 more picks that we overlooked. (laughs) Listen to you. The other three on my actual list we've already talked about. So those are our top five movies about suburbia. Once again, we thank Jessica Harper for playing along. Up next, Adam, is the film spotting marathon,
0: 13 years in the making. Yes, we finally dig into the work of John Cassavetes next, beginning with Faces. Stay with us. Say we get into the cage and, and through the security doors there and down the elevator we can't move and past the guards with the guns and into the vault we can't open.
3: Without being seen by the cameras.
0: Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, well, say we do all that. Uh, we're just supposed to walk out of there with $150 million in cash on us without getting stopped?
1: Yeah. I know it sounds unlikely, but that is Ocean's Eleven's plan for winning this year's Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s. Good luck to him. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven is currently part of a tough play-in matchup against Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. Voting in all 13 play-in matches is currently live at filmspotting.net slash madness, or you can find a link right at the top of filmspotting.net on the homepage. Most matchups are playing out. As we probably expected, Josh, but there are a few surprises as well. The final sixty-four film, Film Spotting Madness Bracket, will be announced on next week's show. So that's really when the madness begins. So I still have time to watch Yee. Yee. You do. Okay. And I have time to finish the last hour of Yee. Yee. Oh. I've been doing it in parts. You have to. It's a three hour film. It Worth is. it. Worth it. But it's three hours, Josh. So okay. I think yourself. I can do it. First round matchups will actually go live around noon on Monday. February 25th. Subscribers to the film spotting newsletter actually get first shot at voting. You can subscribe to the newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash episodes. Also, on the show next week, we will continue the John Cassavetes marathon with 1974's A Woman Under the Influence. We'll get to our conversation about 1968's Faces in just a bit. We'll round out the marathon right now with The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and Opening Night. All these titles are available to rent on most platforms or at your local library shout out for interlibrary loan. We've been getting a lot of comments in the email bag and social media, Josh, about people who like to go that route, which you do as well. I do. The only problem is those things are due back. It comes
0: up That's pretty quickly. True. I've got to squeeze in a woman under the influence.
1: Can't and I can't procrastinate.
0: That dollar a day fine,
1: that'll kill you. <laughs> More information about the marathon at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We did want to take a quick moment to note a couple of passings. We missed it last week, but Albert Finney dying on the 7th of February at the age of 82. Also, this past week, on the 15th, Bruno Gans, age 77. We last saw Finney on screen in 2012 Skyfall. He was also in The Born Legacy, a five-time Oscar nominee, first in 1964 for the title role in Tom Jones, which I've only seen Josh probably because I think my sophomore year as an English major, I had to read... Henry Fielding's very long novel, and I might have just decided you did the to the movie cheat. route? I wasn't a good English major. Adam, this shocks I and appalls cheated. me. Yeah, I'm not sure. I finished... That book. But if you've seen it, wow. if you've seen that book, if you've seen how thick it is, Josh, you wouldn't sit there and judge me the way I can see you judging me right now. I, ju- I just never would have expected that. Of yeah, you. I know. He was last nominated in 2000 for Aaron Brockovich. Now, longtime listeners of the show may recall that in 2009, before your time here, Josh, we did our angry young man Marathon, those British kitchen sink films of the 60s primarily. And we talked about Albert Finney's turn in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning from 1960. Not one of my favorite films overall from that marathon. I saw others I like more, a very good marathon, but he was just one of those presences on screen. And I definitely encourage seeking out that movie.
0: And that's a title a number of people mentioned when on Twitter, especially people were remembering some of his best work I was completely unfamiliar with. And this kept popping up as a crucial film to see of his so if like me you haven't caught up with it maybe that is a place to start probably most listeners are familiar with him from miller's crossing which we recently had a sacred cow review of i think just last year and he's so instrumental and i guess what is a supporting role but also one that presides over that entire Mm -hmm. film in a lot of ways and and i'll think of him sometimes you know actors who have a long career like this They'll get a role near the end that just feels like it's something of a summation to their persona when they're older that works as a nice send off, even if it isn't technically their last film. And, and I think of Tim Burton's Big Fish this way, where Finney plays this tall, tale-telling father, older father of Billy Crudup's character. And he's, he's a charming liar. And I need to see a lot more of what Finney did, but that sounds like a fairly accurate description for a lot of his roles, and he just lives into it there as a nice one of his
1: final films. Well, aren't all actors on some level charming liars? I suppose. He he was one of the most charming. We also touched on Bruno Gans. Both of us probably have less of a relationship to him and his work. I actually have not seen 2004's Downfall, where he played Adolf Hitler. Of course, I've seen all the memes that came in the wake of that film and that performance, but really... If anything, I wanted to include him this week just to make sure that if people have not seen Wings of Desire, I would bump that up to the list ahead of Saturday night and Sunday morning, actually.
0: Oh, yeah. I think that's the film you have to see if any of the ones we've mentioned you haven't. And when I think of Gans in that film, it's more of as this presiding angel over these lost humans. It's the posture he takes and the gestures he makes. It's a very physical performance. He has a gentle smile and... He kind of somehow without any special effects exists in two planes at once when he leans up against uh, a human who doesn't know he's there and offers this caress that's you you feel like it's maybe a half inch away from Mm -hmm. them, but they existentially feel it's all in how Gans holds his body in that performance. It's incredible. Yeah, I love that film. Love that performance. All right, one more quick note here that I want to share for the listeners who follow some of my work at The Day Job, which is Think Christian Faith and Pop Culture website. We have now launched a podcast, so I hope my voice is going to be able to hold out, Adam. It's not going to be as frequent as we do this show, so that might help, but it's essentially going to do some of the same things we do on the website, exploring pop culture artifacts from a faith perspective. And if listeners do want check it out. This is the week to do it because it's our third show. We're finally getting to movies to focus really on movies because of the Oscars. I'm going to double down on the idea we talked about a little bit in our Roma review about this notion of secular Saints with the character of Cleo there. Uh, we're also going to bring in If Beale Street Could Talk, your favorite film of yes. the year, Adam, and look at that picture through that lens and particularly talk about how Barry Jenkins' camera uh, helps us to see the two main characters, Fonny and Tish, there. So basically the idea is I'm, I'm bringing in different Think Christian writers for each episode. We'll try to wrap it around a theme. Um, music lovers, we're also going to do a Spotify playlist for each episode that touches on that theme as well so yeah if you've been following me there at think christian uh you can check out think christian faith and pop culture podcast wherever you're listening to this one with
1: that let's get to massacre theater this is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt we are not going to offer up a new terrible performance this week because we're in our film spotting madness break but we did want to announce our most recent winner when we massacred this scene
3: Let me tell you what I'm thinking about, sweetie. I was in the bath one day when I realized why I was destined for greatness.
2: You know how concerned people are about appearances. This is attractive, that is not.
0: Well, that is all behind me. I now do what other people only dream. I make art until someone dies. See? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I am the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist.
2: What do you want?
0: My face on the $1 bill. That's Jack Nicholson's Joker with Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale in 1989's Batman, written by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarron and directed by the aforementioned Tim Burton. Also on that episode, we had our reviews of The Lego Movie 2 and Velvet Buzzsaw. Tie-ins between those films and Batman? Well, listeners had a few ideas, including this from Dustin Markell. He's in San Diego, California. From the jump, it was only a matter of which Jack Nicholson role Josh was reading. It all fell into place, the film, the scene, the connections, with the line, I make art till someone dies. It's 1989's Batman. Incidentally, the last movie I ever saw in a drive-in theater. The clip is from the art gallery scene specifically and follows Joker's joyful desecration of priceless artwork. He and his goons spray painting and slicing portraits to the tune of Prince's Party Man, a scene that might have fit naturally into both films you reviewed last week, Velvet Buzzsaw and the Lego Movie 2, the second part. Velvet Buzzsaw could be seen as Joker's vain iconoclastic tagging spree writ large, as he, like Buzzsaw's critics and dealers, reclaims several classics in his own image. Lego 2, of course, features Batman prominently, and who, as played by Will Arnett, has become a self-parody of himself, not unlike recent Joker portrayals. The purity and corruption of art and the question of who decides those terms is also at the heart of each film, as we see characters attempting to create work that will give their lives value and purpose, or at least context, using only the materials at their disposal, even when, as in all three cases, those materials represent the original work of other artists. And, of course, the gallery scene in Batman ends with Joker asking the same fundamental question as the kid sister from the Lego movies. Oh, this is a Nicholson voice I'm supposed to do? <laughs> I, mean, Dustin is asking I wonder. I is wonder like,
1: actually if this was Sam who added Nicholson voice. <laughs> who added this? Voice. Where does he get all those
0: wonderful toys? That was terrible. <laughs> it really was. That does. was bad. I yeah. need some time to warm up. <laughs> All right, Dustin ends here. Feel free to mail my critic TM badge along with my
1: film spotting t shirt or at least play party man to close out this segment. Indeed. Very in depth. Dustin. Very in depth. Dustin earned it a plus for that entry. We also got these comments on the performances, or at least mainly your performance, Josh. Ted Schultz in Penn Argyle, Pennsylvania. Josh is clearly doing Jack Nicholson's Joker while Adam phones in Kim Basinger's Vicki Vale from 1989's that's, batman that's just not nice Todd. okay no but not inaccurate ryan ross at baylor university says way to go josh even if i got more of a Roz from monsters ink <laughs> impression jack nicholson will be proud and really talk about nailing it that's exactly who you <laughs> just what sounded I like without really much preparation you this sounded just time, like huh?
0: ross got a little Roz in me i am the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist All right. A few more connections here. This one comes from Franco Asmail. So connections. Well, I haven't seen Velvet Buzzsaw or Lego Movie 2, but Jake Gyllenhaal's sister Maggie was in The Dark Knight and the superior Joker Heath Ledger was in Brokeback Mountain with Jake. Here we go. And Jake G was in City Slickers with Jack Palance, whose speaking style was made fun of
1: by the Joker in Batman. More good stuff. Jeff in Olympia, Washington, closes us out. This summer will be the 30th anniversary of Batman. Tim Burton has a new film coming out this year, a live-action remake of the classic Dumbo, Major Eye Roll, Jeff adds. Not going to be first in line. <laughs> the Dark Knight, another film with an iconic Joker, is included in the Film Spotting Madness shortlist. We thought of every single wow. one of those connections. What a but, scene pick, but thanks Sam. for... Noting all of them, everyone. Yeah, Sam did well. And how about this? And Josh, I have to note, because you may not believe it. listeners may not believe it. Totally random. The picking process, legitimately totally random. But think about Mm -hmm. the scene we massacred. Think about all this talk about Batman and look at who our winner is and where he is from. The winner is Robert Scott, who resides in Wayne, Michigan. So two first names like Bruce Wayne, Robert Scott. (laughs) And he's from Wayne, Michigan. How does that happen? This is just eerie. The universe is just lining up in our favor. Congratulations, Robert. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. And we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt, the Critic TM badge. We'll see. (laughs)
0: That was John Marley, Fred Draper, and Gina Rowlands in 1968's Faces. It's the fourth film directed by John Cassavetes. It's his second indie, his second real Cassavetes film after his debut, 1958's Shadows. He had two Hollywood directorial efforts in between those. Faces was nominated for three Oscars, Best Supporting Actor for Seymour Cassell, Best Supporting Actress for Lynn Carlin, and Best Original Screenplay for Cassavetes. Now our last Film Spotting Marathon was on Vincent Minnelli, and we had a lot of help with that one, Adam, from listener Nathaniel Myers. He ended up basically doing the setup, doing our work for yeah. us each time and, and really capturing what was interesting about each film and then posing us a question. The professor earned a lot of extra credit. Absolutely. And so here he is again. That worked out really well for us, not having to do all that work. Mm-hmm. Let's hear from Nathaniel.
3: Hello, Film Spotting. So, I'm slightly worried that by leaving this voice message, I'm going to have jinxed the long awaited Cassavetti's marathon, but I'm also just so glad to see the marathons return, and this marathon in particular, that I figured, what the heck. So, guys, where to even begin with Cassavetti's faces? Maybe first with the exquisitely grainy 16mm black and white film stock, which you know, might have been revolutionary in its time as a marker of independent cinema, but which now just looks so strikingly beautiful in the era of digital and iPhone cameras. Or what about the jarring, fast-paced editing, capturing everything from the feverish youth culture that Richard and Maria Forrest step into to the turbulent downward spiral of their own marriage? Then there's the incredible improvisational performances themselves, not least John Marley and Lynn Carlin as the middle-aged couple, but also, of course, Gina Rollins and Seymour Cassell, whose true claim to fame is obviously Max Fisher's dad in Rushmore. Or how about the film's overall tone, which I would characterize as a kind of dark menace, where laughter and singing and then dancing and finally cigarettes and sleeping pills seem to fill the empty void that these characters face. Guys, apparently this film took six months to shoot and three years to edit. It only took film spotting 13 years to finally talk about it. So my question to you guys now is, was it worth the wait? Thanks, guys. Thank
0: you very much for that, Nathaniel. Capturing it well again. And just a little more background here, we do have essentially this married couple that has drifted apart. Dickie played by John Marley. He prowls late-night restaurants and clubs and ends up one night at the house of Jeannie, who has played by gina Rollins. meanwhile a little while later in the film we see his wife played by lynn carlin who hits a nightclub with some of her friends they dance with a younger man named chet played by seymour cassell and he ends up coming home with them so we kind of have two pairs uh, of people searching after something adam whether or not they find it is maybe a question we can get into but let's start with nathaniel's question this has been a long time in the making you were somewhat familiar with Cassavetes, but certainly had not dug in this deeply
1: worth the wait. Yes or no? First, can I say how weird it was to see a young Seymour Cassell? He's one of those guys I just assume was born 63. (laughs) That's true. He's got that face. (laughs) He does. Can
0: I tell you something? I went into this more naive than you and didn't really do any research. I figured I'm just going to watch this movie. as If I wandered into the theater in Mm -hmm. 1968, not going to know anything about it. I'm looking at this kid (laughs) And I'm thinking, man, that looks that face looks really familiar. And Debbie actually I pointed it out first. It was when he let out that first big grin.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> like, then you finally placed it. More. <laughs> Absolutely. So, was it worth the wait? It was worth the wait, though. Josh, being totally honest, if you asked me that question after the opening twenty minutes, oh yeah, the answer would have been very different, almost yeah. certainly. Forget how darkly menacing, which is how. Nathaniel so nicely put it, that laughter and the singing and the dancing is, it's also just overwhelming. It's sensory overload being around people who, scene to scene, are always in this high pitch state, usually assisted by inebriation. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the case with the opening 20-minute sequence. I was, I was really out at sea for a while with this film. I think what helped, actually, was being able to place the movie within the context of this week's topic. And this is just another bit of serendipity that after 13 years, we picked this week over a month ago to be the start of our marathon. We don't know what this movie's about. Neither of us really knew what this movie was about. It just so happens to correspond with this top five movies about suburbia. And this is very much a suburbia movie, even though the location itself, I would say, isn't a character. You only really know it's a suburb of LA even because someone asks, I think it's Lynn Carlin asking Chet at one point or one of the other wives asks Seymour Cassell's Chet, how they like living in L.A. Otherwise, you may not place it. I actually can't think of a time in the movie. You can tell me if I'm wrong, Josh, where we see the outside of a house or of a bar or of a nightclub.
0: Yeah, I only We're know. Always
1: this. inside. I only know
0: this because I think there are only two instances and because the name stuck out early on, we see Dickie leaving the Losers Club. That's I right. I think it's called the Losers, which is a right. restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then we also see and I'm trying to remember him drunkenly coming into genie's home mm-hmm. i believe remember they get out of a car is it yeah they get out they of a car you're right opening. that's the one they scene. cross a yard and yep. go in, and they're being that's told it, to though. shush right yes. Yes. which is sort of a sur- suburban thing keep the decorum let's keep this down right Once we, get we get inside, inside.
1: <laughs> though they don't really pay attention even as they're being shushed on their way in that's it though and maybe the lack of exteriors in this film could be due to budgetary constraints, but it's also very clearly what Cassavetes is concerned with here. These interior yeah, spaces. Claustrophobia. The drama that's occurring inside the walls of these homes between characters and within the individuals themselves. Really the line of the movie, I think, is Seymour Cassell's line to Maria, where he says, and maybe even I blame Cassavetes a little bit for having such a great line, but having it so spelled out, he says, nobody has the time to be vulnerable to each other. So we just go on. I mean, right away, our armor comes out like a shield and goes around us. In faces, Cassavetes forces us to confront people and consequently ourselves at their most vulnerable. The armor is almost always down here. We're seeing many of these characters in states and situations where they're debased, they're unprotected. And that can be really ugly and really difficult to watch, especially with the combination of that jarring editing. Nathaniel's right, but also these long takes. So -hmm. it's playing out in real time. And when the handheld camera is so direct and unflinching with those close-ups, sometimes extreme close-ups, you really are getting inside the headspace of these characters, which isn't a place you really want to be. And I said the camera was direct. I did that deliberately because it often feels more like a piece of direct cinema from the time, something from D.A. Pennebaker or the Maisels or Robert Drew than it does a fictional narrative, certainly a Hollywood fictional narrative. Well, it,
0: it gets to, I would say it gets to that sensibility definitely in the morning. A lot of this is these people not realizing how lost they are because they are in this state of, they're vacillating between this joy and this anger. Yeah, it's manic. And it's a, you know, it's an alcohol-infused mix of the two. And so the movie really captures um, how... On a booze-soaked night, things can turn on a dying, mm-hmm. and you can go from that euphoria to that despair. And certainly we're left. We, we're brought tellingly the next morning where we spend most of the last maybe 20, 30 minutes of the film in that state. Yeah, let's deal with uh, what you said at the top, which is very true, this sense of being overwhelmed and how long is this going to go on was sort of my question and I think people can have two responses to the fact that these are very long scenes they're meandering purposely so and some people might love it like this sort of improvisational filmmaking though you're right the editing is very intentional Mm -hmm. but it has the feel in the moment certainly improvisational acting um, where these characters are just playing out a good script here that he's giving them some great lines but also playing the moment out Mm -hmm. how they want to that can that can be maddening to someone or you could just eat it up. And I I think there is an indulgence here. I I experienced it as indulgence in certain points where we understood that the point of the scene was even to make us feel like this was going on forever. Yeah. It went on past that point. Um, But the movie also did grow on me because I think it gives itself the time to wander around and eventually find a gem. Right. I think uh, Chet, has a few of those. He the does. line I will quote from him is also spoken to Maria at a very low point when she actually lets out some genuine emotion, cry. That's it. That's life, honey. Uh, and just the way he he just delivers that in this burst is fantastic. And then I would also say that the film finds its footing at least for me when the camera finds its way to Roland's. Mm-hmm. And there is a, there's two things going on here. I think she's fantastic, and so she's offering something that's slightly more interesting than what we're getting in some of those meandering moments. And also, I think the camera looks at her differently than it looks at any other character. Looks at Jeannie, I should say. Yes. Differently
1: than it looks at any other character. You, sounds like you had similar experience. I definitely feel that way, though maybe that's the magnetism of Gina Rowlands. you yeah. I mean, either way, whether it's on the part of Cassavetti's behind the camera and his relationship obviously to her or it's just the way she is filmed. you definitely see it in her close-ups there's one moment in particular where she almost looks directly at the camera in the kitchen and she has a little bit of a breakdown in a moment where again she's experienced some of this debasement really from the moment we see her she experiences that kind of debasement being degraded by the men who want to be with her or maybe they just want someone they can degrade that's what we get a lot but She lets it out at one point, though, very subtly and very quietly in the kitchen. And that that moment where the camera is close, but almost spying on her in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable that you're watching it.
0: You know what it does, if I'm remembering correctly, and this is a morning after scene. Mm -hmm. This is um, Dickie has insulted the breakfast she's made for him. So she takes it back to the kitchen. Or is this the same one? Yeah. And if I'm remembering it correctly, she's singing to herself, trying to cover up this low point that she's at but a tear still slips out and i think we see that from the next room and when there's probably some editing going on here that i forget but it seems to me when that tear comes out the camera zooms from that room into that close-up and so it's a combination of exactly what you're talking about roland's doing the work here that's magnetic and Cassavetti's camera catching it and getting in there for the right bit. And so there are a lot of instances like that. I think he also gives her some of the best lines, including one of self-critique where Dickie has been going on and on and on. And then he tells her that she's talking too much. And she says, I right.
1: talk I? Too much. I love that because because if you're a viewer and you don't have that moment in that pause oh, where you, you go, her? <laughs> and then she verbalizes it.
0: And we need that too. Like yes. there are points where I'm feeling like this movie is talking too much. Right. So so I love that quite a bit. And then the, the moment where she says, and she does this with real sadness and no irony and she's not looking for praise. I'm too old to be lovely. And this is like an incredibly young woman saying that who's talking about her life here, not her looks so much. Uh, and, and then this, I think this one comes in the morning after scene we were just talking about. How come you hate me now? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you realize whatever Jeannie has been looking for, whatever she's looking to gain out of these relationships, there's a part of her, a small, maybe a small part that hoped there might be something real. And then that's all kind of dashed yes. by that morning, too.
1: Just don't ever say you know all of Genie Rap's secrets.
0: <laughs> you're wearing false eyelashes. So? You're stupid. So help me God, you're stupid.
1: I'm stupid.
3: You can't even say a decent Peter Pepper, Piper, Picto Pepper, Pickle Pepper. all you do is say Peter Pepper, Pick a Pickle Poopers.
0: Well, that doesn't make any sense.
3: I dream of Genie, Peter Piper. Laughing, dancing, having a good time—does it begin to come
1: back to you?
0: Oh, you're such a child!
1: I am not a child.
3: You're a—you're a lousy dancer. You ought to take lessons.
0: I, I guess a question I have for you too is like, what, what do you think the other characters are looking for? Like, what? Th- there's two age groups here, right? There's Genie yeah. and there's Chat. Um, and then there is Dicky and his wife Maria, who's younger, looks younger than him, probably a little still bit, but older, closer than to him. Yeah. yeah. So, so what? What are Maria and, and, and Dickie Dicky looking for? Because I don't think it's love.
1: I no. I, I think Chet actually does verbalize it at one point where he says basically like that's that's it is is laying down with someone a distraction. He's yeah. looking for that distraction, <laughs> and and that's the the relief from the monotony of life, of this existence in the suburbs and whatever he is not finding the answers to, he at least can seek some refuge, find some solace in being around these women who cling to him and mm-hmm. need him so much for some kind of validation. And if he gets lucky at the end of the night, well that's that's really all he's after. Yeah. At that point.
0: I think it yeah, that's true. And it's probably just youth too. I mean both Chet and Jeannie are more than love objects, they're time machines. Um, it's a way for them to get back to that yeah. time in their life where it, a night out was all that, all that really mattered. And there weren't any other consequences, and and it made them feel like twenty two instead of you know forty two or whatever right. they're supposed to be here. And and these people, yeah, it's different than if if he you know ends up with her at the end of the night. It's not so much a warm body he's after. It's that experience yeah. of being. 20 years younger. Yeah,
1: yeah, it probably is. You said indulgent at one point. You do need to consider, Josh, when you say that, that according to something I saw somewhere online, the first cut of this film was three hours. I believe that. So he got it down. And I think we do forgive some of that indulgence, not only because of the work of art we ultimately get, but also because in 68, it's Cassavetti's still very much trying to find his voice and trying to find this aesthetic. And I... Don't begrudge him overreaching a little bit as he pushes that envelope. I got the sense, for better and for worse, and it's definitely both, that sometimes his direction must have been to his actors and then by extension to the characters to just feel something. And I know I use that word a bunch in our top five, but it's as if. He wanted them to not really have too many introspective moments. We get a little bit of that with Jeannie. I think that's why she stands out, too. She, until some of the scenes with Maria, Lynn Carlin later, she's the most introspective, actually, the one who will kind of pause in some scenes and take a time out. But otherwise, it's as if he doesn't want them overanalyzing their motives or their emotions. He just wants them in motion. He wants them acting. And I mean, they're taking some kind of action. It's as if through the manicness of their speech, and the sounds and the physicality they will somehow land on some yeah. kind of truth that isn 't found in what we 're used to seeing in Hollywood films where people perfectly verbalize right. exactly that emotion and pass along some kind of life lesson and epiphany that doesn't happen in these films; he just wants them to constantly be seeking
0: yeah and if we and part of the search is crucial, you know even if it feels like it's it 's taking a long time in some cases one scene that I think is Extended but feels perfectly right is the final one mm-hmm. um, where Maria and Dickie are back in their home. Uh, it's another morning after, and they're just kind of trapped with each other on this staircase. Yeah. Walking up and down, sharing a cigarette or at least sharing a light. Mm-hmm. So they want to be in orbit, but they also, there's so much animosity at this point, they can only get so close. And I think that's a lot of meandering that works perfectly.
1: Yeah. Especially as the ending of the film. No, I agree completely. Other maybe tie-ins back to suburbia and that malaise. There's a scene where John Marley Richard is talking to Jeannie, and this is during their second night together. And there were some other men over, and they're kind of getting into it. And he says... You know, he doesn't have a secretary that he just picks up the phone and calls and she gets him whatever he wants. I buried eight relatives in the past six years. There's nobody left but me. I'm just a mild success in a dull profession. And I want to start over again. That line could have been the line that defined our top five list. So many characters who were stuck In that sense of mild success and the boredom of what they do day in and day out. And he's searching for something, anything, a spark that he does find in Genie. He then follows that. I think this is key because he mentioned nobody being left but him and burying other relatives. He says, and I've got a bad kidney. (laughs) I love that he throws that in because they're all just so scared. All of these characters fear of their own mortality, of their past choices, of the future choices they're going to make, of not getting to make a choice at all. That's what drives all of these squabbles, every hurtful thing any of them say to someone that's expressed between these characters in this movie. It really is driven by fear.
0: Well, and thats I think that's what Nathaniel's getting at when he uses the phrase dark menace. And the way it struck me, uh, the sensory element of this film was an itchiness so that even you know there is a lot of joy genuine joy in these scenes especially when they're you know they've been drinking away and they're feeling good uh, and then there's real raw anger but for some reason both of those emotions though they're polar opposites feel the same in this film because everything has this it's like it's scratching its own skin trying to get at what you're talking about and the performances are doing that the camera work is doing that and the editing is doing that. And you add that all together and it does amount to an experience like you were describing at the start yeah. where you're like, you are
1: at sea uh, really throughout this film. All of those Housewives too, and that scene, that night with Cassell's character, that could be straight out of all that heaven allows. That could be straight out of Cirque if Cirque was able or willing to... To get that bleak. The way they talk about each other and their lives. When the first one leaves, she's mad about the way Chet treated her. And then two of the characters talk at the door, and she's like, oh, that's going to send her back to the couch for 20 years. And she's going to talk about it later. And it's going to be this gossip thing between them. That feels straight out of a lot of these films. Yeah. Exactly. And the other aspect of this film that really did improve my experience as I went along with it is that at some point you recognize that it isn't going to be just the story of richard the mild success in adult profession getting to start over his redemption or lack thereof not that that couldn't be a good movie on its own though as we've noted richard in particular wears me out quite a bit so i'm not sure i'd want to watch that film but how much richer is it that this is also maria's story it very much becomes her story and to an extent genie's story yeah. just as much As his, and then these stories get to inform and intersect with each other. I think what that does is it shows that Cassavetti's interest is in not just telling that one story, the one story that's probably more relatable to him personally. I can only guess. I know some of his own problems with alcohol. He may have seen a lot of himself in that Richard character, but instead, what he chose to do was tell a more universal, a more complex human story. Well, it also makes it something of a self-critique, too. Yes, which it does. I think in
0: this day and age where we're rightly closely monitoring any films for its depiction of masculinity and the treatment of women, I think Faces holds up incredibly well in You're that right. regard because it's operating, to me, on this level of self-critique. And I'm just thinking about that scene where Chet is back with the, the housewives. We can't end without pointing out that Seymour uh, Cassell has some Amazing dance moves. He does.
1: I mean, that, that is good stuff. Abs, too. He's <laughs> yes. got a six-pack, yeah. Seymour Cassell. The guy was once young. Again, I thought he was always 63. <laughs> so we're off to a somewhat loud and at times really uncomfortable, but ultimately very rewarding start to our John Cassavetes Marathon with Faces, which is available to rent or stream on most platforms, as are all the films in our Cassavetes Marathon next week. 1974's A Woman Under the Influence. For more on the marathon and past marathons, visit filmspotting.net slash marathons. Over at
0: filmspotting.net, you can also find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And that's where you can vote in the Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s. Right now, we have our play-in round up there for you to vote in. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want some Film Spotting merch, head over to filmspotting.net slash shop and pick out a T-shirt. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. To subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, Visit filmspotting.net slash episodes.
1: Out in wide release this weekend, How to Train Your Dragon 3. Josh, what's the excitement level for number three? (sighs) That that's the okay example. moving moving <laughs> right and, along. and i really like the other
0: two yeah they're both good how many of these things do we need adam <laughs> we will see or or we won't i'm just talking existentially you know not uh-huh. franchise that's specific here
1: too deep for the end of the show fighting with my family also out this is a comedy about a pro wrestling family with dwayne johnson florence Pugh, nick frost and vince vaughn it's directed by Stephen merchant out in limited release here in chicago i don't know how i missed this yeah nuri bilga Jalan who did Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, among other films, including Michael Phillips' Beloved Climates, has a new one out called The Wild Pear Tree. I knew this was coming. I didn't realize it was here. Well, we have some work to do, apparently. Next week, in addition to talking about the second film and our Cassavetes Marathon, A Woman Under the Influence, we will launch Film Spawning Madness 2019 in all its glory, the best of the 2000s, the bracket announcement. All the matchups, all the insanity, all the insanity, All of the picks you will have to make that will prompt you to call us monsters, and we will deserve it. It's all coming next week. 64 films. There can only be one winner we will crown the best film of the 2000s. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe,
0: this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Sharon Van Etten. It comes from the album Remind Me Tomorrow. More information is at SharonVanEtten.com. For film spotting, I'm Josh Larson,
1: and I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
2: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: Film spotting is listener supported.